This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The AFD party program specifically says that the constitutional order of the German Republic is illegitimate. It makes it clear in the preamble of its party program that its purpose is to disrupt, to destroy, and to replace the current constitutional order of the Federal Republic. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. All right, friends, this is obviously not the introduction to this podcast that I was planning on for this week. We live in a very extraordinary moment, and one that's freighted with deep danger to a lot of our loved ones, a lot of ourselves. I've been busy writing about Corona for the past few weeks. I'm arguing very early on that we need to cancel everything, warning about the danger that we might run out of medical supplies and personnel to actually treat everybody who is sick with this horrible new disease, and trying to understand why so many of our fellow citizens are failing to live up to their basic moral duties. You can read about some of those things on The Atlantic. Here on this podcast, I'm still figuring out what to do in the coming weeks and months. My recording equipment is locked away in my office. I am self-quarantining, but I will make sure that I keep getting you your semi-regular podcast every two weeks, and I will probably have a lot more content about Corona, because frankly, it's hard to think about anything else right now. But for this particular week, you get to enter a little time capsule to the period before the coronavirus outbreak. I have a conversation about Germany. I have an introduction of Konstanze Stelzenmüller that does not mention Corona because we recorded this a, a few weeks ago before the gravity of the situation was clear. So if you're feeling like escapism, please listen to this podcast. If you don't feel like escape, some of this may sound light and frivolous and oddly tone-deaf in retrospect, but I think it's worth remembering that there was a life before Corona. And even though it is absolutely crucial right now for everybody to engage in social distancing, for governments to do what they can to expand our medical infrastructure, there will indeed be a life after Corona. And I think it's worth remembering that as well. Stay safe, my friends. And I promise to deliver a new podcast in one way or another in about two weeks. Recently, I noticed that I haven't really talked very much about Germany on this podcast. And, well, in light of recent events, unfortunately, the topic of populism is just as urgent in Germany as it is in many other parts of the world. Now, as soon as I decided that I need to remedy this shortcoming, that I need to go and talk about Germany, I obviously thought of my friend Konstanze Stelzenmüller, who is one of the most insightful and the wittiest observers of Germany. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, as well as a columnist for the Financial Times. We're really trying to walk through the entire 
post-war history of Germany in this podcast. So we're sort of starting in a way at the post-war settlement, trying to understand what the status quo ante was, and then we slowly go through how that seemingly stable settlement has started to erode and what that means for Germany today. So we're getting to all of the relevant contemporary stuff, all of the horrible ways in which the alternative for Germany, the far-right populists now seem to be holding a lot of power in Germany in the second half of the podcast. It takes us a little while to get there, but I think the payoff is really a deeper understanding of the current situation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Constanze. Thank you for having me on. But what's your English name? Is it Constance? Constanze? Like, what do people say? I really don't mind what they say. I'm a so-called foreign service brat, and with a last name like Stelzenmüller, my parents <laughs> decided to give their children names that were both family names and would pronounce in different languages, you know, right. just in case we were sent to different linguistic universes. So I don't mind whether people say Constanza, Constance, Constance. Americans tend to say Costanza, and then the Spanish is Costanza. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it sounds quite you. good, actually. <laughs> I, I might go with a, with a Swabian Konstanze. Konstanze, uh, exactly. Yes, well, there's, the, there's those options as well, but let's not go there. So, it occurred to me that I haven't really covered Germany in a real way on this podcast, even Shocking. though we're now many, Shocking. many episodes into the it. Moral uh, the moral universe, exactly. Um, well, nobody better to discuss Germany with than you. Well, aren't we both Germans? Well, yes, but you know more about Germany than I do. I was being nice. I was being nice. This is two Germans trying to prove to each other that they have a sense of humor, by the way. So um, uh, all of you might want to tune out now. Um, listen, I mean, I'm always struck when I think about Germany by a trip I took in the fall of 2016, organized by the German Marshall Fund. And we went to meet with a lot of senior German politicians. And this was at a time when the AFD, the alternative for Germany, was already uh, polling in the double digits in all national polls. And we were about six months out from a national election. And with one exception, which we'll get to later, every single politician told us they're never going to get into the Bundestag. They're never going to get into the national parliament. This is all just going to go away. Famous so, last words. Famous last words. So as recently as 2016, I mean, you know, four years ago, less than four years ago, because it was four, there was still the sense that Germany's post-war order is stable and is not going to be at all upset by the rise of far-right populism that we'd already seen in virtually every other country. So I guess what I want to understand is, Give us a brief introduction to what the German post-war order felt like even in sort of, you know, the first decade of the 21st century. And how did it start, at least in some ways, to come apart in the last couple of years? God, you're really starting me at the deep end, aren't you? Absolutely. This is a um, serious podcast, Constanze. <laughs> we might make jokes, but we're, right. still, we're um, still serious. Look, I think what we are seeing in the most broad brush terms is the unraveling of the post Cold War German political order. And the AFD is a very important part of that, but it's enabled by phenomena that I think are to be observed in all sophisticated post-industrial Western societies, and that is the fragmentation of the political landscape, a legitimacy crisis of representative democracy and its mediating institutions, of which the parties are a key one, but publicly funded media are another, the churches, unions, associations, that entire spectrum. And as you and I, being Germans, know very well, nowhere was more careful and cautious attention paid to 
the vitality and solidity of the mediating institutions than in post-war Germany. So for us, this is particularly troubling and startling because I think we sort of assumed that they were going to be around forever. A Harvard sociologist, Robert Putnam, described this phenomenon that he called bowling alone, the fragmentation of, of society. Which, by the way, that, is, is one of my least favorite book titles because though the number of bowling associations and bowling clubs has indeed declined, you can search bowling alleys in America far and wide and you're very rarely going to find somebody who is in a bowling lane on their own, bowling on, by themselves, well, as, the, as depicted on my cover. So I always find that. it slightly I, misleading. I, I haven't, but I do remember vividly on one of the streets in my hometown, uh, where I was born and went to University of Bonn, having what was called a Bundeskegelbahn, not just, mm. you know, a general bowling alley, but a federal, a federal bowling alley. alley. Yes. Very, very impressive. But I never went inside to look at it. And bowling, of course, is uh, derived from a German sport. It comes from, from Kegel. Kegel, I know, bowling association is really important in Germany. Anyway, but why I digress. You want to talk about the AFD and how... Well, no, before we get to the AFD, I think you're right in putting the breakup of the German post-war political order in the context of obviously the rise of populism, but also the fragmentation of a political system and the loss of vitality in the two main ideological traditions that used to dominate German politics, social democracy and Christian democracy. But for people who don't know Germany that well, how would you describe the status quo ante? What did the German post-war political order look and feel like? And Bonn perhaps is a good place to start. Absolutely. Germany's post-war political order, of course, is unusual in Europe because it was designed. Germany was in ruins after the Nazi regime's capitulation in May 1945, and there was a constitutional convent in the late 40s, advised by the Allies and particularly by American constitutional lawyers, that came up with the Grundgesetz, the Basic Law, which was voted into force in 1949 and which continues to be the Constitution of Germany. And it had, of course, constitutional historical antecedents in Germany in the form of the Weimar uh, Republic's democratic constitution, the first nationally democratic constitution Germany had. And if you sort of really want to be nerdy about this, it goes back to the democratic constitutional monarchies of the 1830s in Baden-Württemberg, in Swabia. But it was very much informed by American experience and by, of course, the understanding that the Weimar Constitution had some, had some significant flaws, one of which had been national referenda. In other words, plebiscites, direct democracy at the national level, which while it hadn't caused the demise of the Weimar Republic, certainly it helped polarize political opinion. So the constitution that we got in the basic law was firmly representative, no direct democratic elements, a very careful balancing of the executive, the courts and the legislature, a very careful vertical balancing of powers between the federal level and the federal states. The lender, together with the municipalities, enjoyed significant autonomy. And, of course, the other thing that people forget, but is worth reminding, we at the outset didn't have federal armed forces. We had no military mm. because the idea is we were, you know, what for? Why, why would we ever want to have one again? And we were told to stand up a military in 1956 as a price for joining NATO, which meant 12 divisions, half a million men in short order in a country that had 
lost most of its men in the war. And the other thing that this basic law and the founding fathers, a smattering of mothers among them, paid very careful attention to was the balancing of the state, the economy, and society. And the idea was that this whole order was so carefully designed that you would basically never have to redesign it or repair it. That's certainly what I learned when I went to law school in the early 80s. We were taught, this is a perfect machinery. You students are young and ignorant, and you will never be asked to do major redesign or major repairs. All you have to do is dip a feather in a little bit of oil, apply it to the joints, and that is what your task as managers of the great machinery of power in Germany will be. Again, famous last words. Right. <laughs> so politically, this machine was then dominated for a long time essentially by two political parties, right? Yes. By the Christian Democrats, which right. tended to be dominant, which were in power for a larger portion of this post-war settlement, producing politicians like Konrad Adenauer and Helmut Kohl and now, of course, Angela Merkel. And then the Social Democrats, who were in power for less long, but quite influential as well, and got a similar share of a vote in many elections, a little bit less. But between the two of them, they tended to get about 80% of the vote. What ideological settlement did that give Germany, and how did that start to unravel? The thing to keep in mind here, particularly for American listeners, in this country, the Democratic and the Republican Party basically are very informal arrangements with a very, very vague substructure underneath the national committees, and that really only spring into being around election times. Yeah, and one of the Whereas, examples for that is that it's very, very hard to picture a meeting of a Democratic or Republican Party other than the big convention every four years. Precisely. Whereas the epitome of the German party system is the Ortsverein, the local chapter of your party, which reports to the regional chapter, which reports to the state chapter, which reports to the national party. And, and so the, what, what you're talking about when you say, you know, picture a meeting of a German political party, people might picture the sort of annual big federal conventions, but really they're picturing sort of 12 people sitting around a table at some restaurant. In a pub, or in, in, a pub, in, a, in, a, in a pub at the Stammtisch, the sort of table that they would meet at regularly, that would be theirs by right. And they would be discussing local politics. And actually, this is what made German politics very connected to the grassroots and very vital for a very long time. And you can adduce a number of reasons why this became obsolete. Again, I think the fragmentation of the political landscape happened fairly naturally. We've left out one party, which is the kingmaker liberals, which, while the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats usually got 40 plus percent of the vote, the liberals got somewhere between around 10 or, or 15 percent, and therefore always had the role of kingmaker in elections. For the longest time, they chose to do that together with the Christian Democrats, not least because in the immediate post-war period, the liberals had a significant nationalist factions. And then famously in the late 60s, the culture flipped, as it were, and the Social Democrats came to power first in a grand coalition and then in a Social Democratic liberal coalition under Chancellor Willy Brandt. That was the first time that the German political culture, that the needle really moved from the centre-right to the centre-left. But that's a long time ago. The Greens came up when I was going to university in the early 80s. I remember very vividly that they were considered by almost everybody, and I think that very much includes the Social Democrats, 
as a highly dubious political force unlikely to stay, with concerns that suggested they might be the fifth column of the Soviet Union, somehow the result of political external influence. And, and in fact, as we know now, both the German Democratic Republic's Communist East Germany's Stasi and the Soviet Union tried very hard to meddle in German politics across the board. Mm. But the Greens, it turns out, have become a power to be reckoned with. And now they're polling almost neck to neck with the Christian Democrats. And there are jokes which are actually based on political fact about conservative politicians knowing that their children all vote green. In fact, in Bavaria, there is a politician whose daughter is a Green. Um, she's a member of the regional legislature, and her daughter is a member of the legislature for the Greens. Oh, really? So, yeah, so, yeah. so mother and daughter, yes, and mother both and in the same parliament it, yes, for different parties. Different parties. That's, that's exactly. very entertaining. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that, actually. So when you're thinking about this German party political system, it starts with very stable with essentially three relevant parties. There's a few others very, very early in the existence of the Federal Republic, but they very quickly go away. And then for a long time, it feels like, you know, there's this big block of the Social Democrats, this big block of the Christian Democrats, and then the Liberals, who are kind of center-right, pro-market party at most periods of German history, somewhere in the middle, and they decide who has a majority. So there's always these governing coalitions, and the governing coalitions tend to look like major partner of the Christian Democrats, minor partner of the Liberals, or then for a certain period, major partner of the Social Democrats, minor partner the Liberals, and then the Liberals flipped again and Helmut Kohl came in and for 16 years we had another government, major partner, the Christian Democrats, minor partner, the Liberals. In this period of time, you first have the growth of the Green Party and that complicates the electoral system. And so for the first time in 1998, I think for the first time at all in German post-war history, you have an outright victory of the opposition where none of the former governing parties remain in the opposition, but Social Democrats and Greens are swept the government. into government yes. in 1998. Exactly. But then in the process of that government, you have a split within the Social Democratic Party, which creates a new amalgam of a party, which is the ex-communist party from East Germany, together with a sort of far-left or sort of robustly left trade unionist wing of the Social Democratic Party, which was unhappy with the government on Gertrude. And so you get the left party. Well, at the time still called PDS. PDS, Die Linke, yes. So now you have sort of five political parties. You start with political fragmentation, sort of it's growing, growing, growing. Now that still looks like a relatively stable system in 2016. Let's when I go say to something Berlin, about the PDS, though, which is yeah. quite interesting, because German reunification had happened in 1989, or rather, sorry, uh, the war came down in 1989. Germany was reunified in 1990 under Chancellor Kohl. Then, as you say, the Social Democrats and the Greens took power in 1998. The PDS, which came through, as you say, came about through this split-off from the SPD, is actually a composite of the former East German communists and the hard left of the Social Democrats and some old West German communists, who, of the three groups in PDS Die Linke, were by far the most dogmatically Stalinist and doctrinaire whereas the East German communists ended up being fairly pragmatic. And this is sort of an irony of reunification. Remember, there had been Christian democratic and liberal and social democratic parties even under communism. They were, of course, never going to have any political power. They were, as it were, pseudo-democratic window dressing. 
in Eastern Germany, and this is not irrelevant to our next segment where we're going to talk about the AfD, in, in East Germany, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats and the Liberals basically marched in and were seen by the Easterners as what America, after the Civil War, was called carpetbaggers. They were, for better or for worse, associated with these Blockflöten, the opportunistic little parties that were pseudo-democratic window dressing. And so the post-communist Die Linke ended up being seen as the, really, for the longest time, the only homegrown, legitimate, non-carpet-bagging political force in the region, which explains the enduring popularity of Die Linke in Thuringia, where it has managed to field the minister-president in Bodo Hamelow. And we'll get to the relevance of that in a little bit, but the split ideologically within the party persists today. So on the one hand, the party is particularly morally compromised in the East because it really is, in a significant sense, the successor party of the communist ruling party. But at the same time, in the East, it is actually quite pragmatic and in some figures like Boris Romulow, quite sensible. In the West of Germany, it doesn't actually have the same problematic historical derivation, but it is actually much more dominated by quite doctrinaire and in some cases really very extreme figures. Hardline so modern Stalinists, yes. Yeah. So it's a very odd mixture of yeah. moral profiles yeah. in East and in West. Absolutely. So this, I think, gets us roughly to what the state is in 2015 or 2016. When I go to Berlin in 2016 and I'm saying, hey, the AFD is rising and this is going to be sort of the last straw that really makes the system break down because it's going to get in the Bundestag and get all of these problems. People tell me, no, that couldn't possibly happen. It's because to them, the rise of the Green Party had been normalized. The rise of the Left Party had to some extent been normalized and had come to feel like a normal part of a post-war settlement, of a post-unification settlement. But the idea that there might be a far-right party that gets over 5% in Germany just still seemed unimaginable. Well, uh, why did it seem unimaginable and how did the AFD manage to break through that imaginative barrier? There's a couple of things that happened here. For one, there's a German saying, was nicht sein kann, das nicht sein darf, which I think is from a German nonsense poet, it's either Ringelner zum Morgenstern. What shouldn't be, mustn't be, or what shouldn't be, can't be. What, what must be, can't be, perhaps, yeah, something exactly, like that. Yeah. Right. And we have a particular aversion, of course, to hard-right anti-system parties. And we have always been convinced as a political culture that our system is hardwired to keep them at bay, beyond the confines of an acceptable political consensus. And indeed, in the past, while we have had actual Nazi successor parties like the NPD or Nazi successor parties in all but official acknowledgement like Die Republikaner, the Republicans, not to be confused with the American Republicans. The AFD originally, ironically, started as something quite different. In February of 2013, when it was founded, it was created by a bunch of economics and business professors who thought that Germany was being basically pulled over the table by its European partners in the context of the European crisis and was going to be impoverished by the fallout of the global and then the Eurozone economic crisis. This changed dramatically. So the founders were these sorts of 
very professorial establishment. They literally types. were professors. They were, they, were, yeah. they were literally professors. They were quite conservative, of course, yeah. but they were very much of the political establishment. Right. And they the were just right. some of them were disgruntled members of the Christian Democrats, like Alexander Gowland, who an age ago had actually been quite a liberal conservative, well regarded intellectually. And then there was Bernd Lucke, economics professor. And there was really no sign that there was anything else brewing until the refugee crisis, when suddenly the AFD, which had polled at around 5% or just above 5%, which is the threshold to enter into a regional or the national legislature, suddenly morphed into a completely different kind of animal. And in the elections that you're referring to in 2016, when you took this trip, it entered the federal legislature for the first time at 12.6%, which indeed few people had been willing or able to predict. That said, it had already entered by that time into half of the 16 state legislatures. But what we have learned since then is that there have several things have been going on, and in particular that the current form of the AFD has intellectual roots and, as it were, a cavalry in the form of the German New Right, which has been organizing itself since the mid to late 60s, in close contact with the French Nouvelle Droite, and by 2016 had a substantial body of thinkers of publications, its own publishing house, its own websites, magazines, and which, as one expert on the AFD, Volker Weiss, who's written a very, very interesting book about the German New Right, has said, found in the morphed AFD, finally, the infantry it had been looking for for decades. And so the AFD transformed from this sort of somewhat single-issue party about the euro and the euro crisis and the bailouts for Greece into what looks from the outside I would argue, like a much more familiar far-right populist party, much more similar to something like the Front National in yeah. France or the Lega in Italy, with certain yeah. differences on particular aggressively, issues. Aggressively ethno-nationalist. And one of the interesting things you've seen in the history of a party is, again and again, more radical leaders pushing more moderate leaders. And this has happened at least three times now, I would mm -hmm. say. It happened with the founding generation being pushed out by Frauke Petri. It happened by the current leaders of the party uh, taking over in a hostile way from Frauke Petri. And now it looks as though the extreme wing within the current party led, and we are once again back in Thuringia by uh, Björn Höcke, who is the head of the party in Thuringia. And it now very much looks like they are managing to push the comparatively, I'm saying this very carefully, moderate part of the party right now. Yeah, the word moderate in this context is almost meaningless at this point. Yes, you're correct. At the last annual party meeting of the AFD, which was in December of last year, 2019, the so-called Flugel, the hard right wing of the AFD won, led by a man called Tino Kupala. The other key figure here is Björn Höcke, as you say. And the other thing it did, which was extremely significant, was for the first time to impose parliamentary and, and otherwise political discipline on what until then had been an extremely variegated and undisciplined gaggle of leaders. The AFD now marches in unison, and figures like Alexander Gauland or Alice Weidel, who are probably best known outside of Germany as leaders of the AFD, 
I think now are no more than decorative figureheads, window dressing, for what is, to all extents and purposes, a very clearly hard-right ethno-nationalist party that is very well organized. It's still got a lot of political amateurs in its ranks because it had to hire so much staff when it got into the legislature. It had real problems staffing its members' offices. But we have been seeing since the federal elections of 2017 a genuine political learning process and impact by the AFD, and that has been very interesting to observe. Yeah, I mean, sort of two thoughts here. One is, you know, the biggest dangers for new parties is that they split over doctrinal differences or make such a fool of themselves because of political inexperience that they're pushed out. And unfortunately, I think the AFD has now crossed the danger zone on those two things. And that's one of the reasons to believe that it's there to stay, that it has a representation at this point in every single state parliament and the federal parliament, and it has managed to do that. The other thing I want to say is that it's hard for me to think about how important the difference between these two wings of a party is. On the one hand, I am horrified by both of them. Strategically, you might hope that the more extreme wing takes over because I think they have a little bit more of a ceiling electorally, for that's a very dangerous bargain. But I do think that this difference between them is still significant. I mean, the comparatively less extreme wing is probably similar to something like Marine Le Pen, which is plenty nasty for my little tastes. But I think there's an argument to be made that the flugel, the, the far-right wing, goes even beyond that. I mean, it has perhaps genuine neo-Nazis in its rank. Exactly. So perhaps an imperfect comparison is between sort of Donald Trump on the so-called quote-unquote moderate wing of a party and somebody, you know, more similar to Richard Spencer on the extreme wing of a party. And there is a pertinent moral difference, despite my moral concerns about both of them, yeah. uh, between Donald Trump and Richard Spencer. Let's talk about the figureheads, the thinking, and then the votes that they get, perhaps in, in succession, if you want. I mean, you're right that there isn't moral equivalence between the two camps. But it's also very clear from now about three years of parliamentary debates in which the leaders of the AFD have participated that even the so-called moderates will from time to time let their masks slip and to demonstrate their true nature, which is useful because it shows the general German public, A, that they're wearing masks, and B, that they have to make an effort to not let them slip all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's also helpful to point to the fact that the AFD has been forced by the, by the fact that it's now a parliamentary power to explicate itself in the form of policy papers and party programs in ways that it didn't have to do before it entered the mm -hmm. Bundestag. And it's worth pointing out, for example, that the AFD party program specifically says that the constitutional order of the German Republic is, by its nature, illegitimate. There is nothing moderate about that. It makes it clear in the preamble of its party program that its purpose is to disrupt, to destroy, and to replace the current constitutional order of the Federal Republic. There is nothing ambiguous about that. And all the further chapters are, as far as I'm concerned, again, just 
you know, so much veiling for that fundamental fact. Mm. It's also really worth reading the, the paper on military policy that they published last summer, which I won't bore you with the details, but since I study security and military policy, I was very interested to find that one of the things that they want the German Federal Armed Forces to learn how to do again is to, and I quote, fight pitilessly. That's the language of the Wehrmacht and the Third Reich. And as far as I'm concerned, not enough people in Germany can read this stuff. Mm. Now, the other thing, of course, that one could do if one wanted to is to listen to these people in parliamentary debates and to see them at rallies, many of which have been filmed. Um, in particular, the Flügel quite enjoys marching. And there's any amount of TV footage of key leaders of the AFD, like Rukpala, like Höcke, marching with known either right-wing, hard-right identitarians or actual neo-Nazi groups. And one aspect of this, of course, is the attitude towards the past. And one of the most famous quotes from Jörn Höcke yes. is his statement that he thinks that Germany should affect a 180-degree turn in its understanding or relationship with uh, towards the past, yeah. and particularly with World War right. II and the Holocaust yeah. in mind. Yeah. So I think he's also referred to the politics of German memory, which, of course, are foundational for Germany's reconstitution as a decent country after 1945 as a cult of guilt, which, again, leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. Yeah. May I make a point about the votership, which I think is important to understand that the AFD also currently finds itself in a little bit of a quandary, which is that if you look at how the AFD has polled, regionally there is a real distinction between how it polls in the West and how it polls in the East. In the western 11 states, the old West Germany, it has plateaued at 10% or less. That's it. Which is a little more, but not that much more, than sort of older hard-right parties, the NPD or the Republicana that we talked about earlier, had gotten before the wall came down. So only episodically. So they never, they never were able absolutely. to get 10% consistently. There was moments yes, of exactly. uh, political yes. economic crisis yes. when once right. in this state, once in that Quite state, right. they were able Quite to get right. about 10%. And one of the reasons for that, of course, was, and we haven't mentioned that yet, was that earlier uh, Christian Democratic leaders, before Angela Merkel, including and up to Helmut Kohl, made damn sure that their party covered all the bases. Mm. In other words, sucked out the air from, um, from any space the hard, that the hard right m might be uh, able to occupy for longer than a legislature. And the most famous phrase of this in German post-war history comes from Franz Josef Strauss, exactly. the longtime prime minister of Bavaria, yeah. who is a deep conservative, but not somebody on the hard right, a democratic yeah. deep conservative. And he explained famously at one point that he wants to make sure that between his party and the wall to his right, there's only one hair's breadth, or not even one hair's breadth. So this is uh, part of his strategy. And I actually want to get back to that when we start to talk about the leadership race uh, in the Christian Democratic Party and the likely successor to Angela Merkel. But one of the problems that the rise of the AFD has created, and this is partially because the fragmentation of a political party system is now even further advanced with the growth of a Bundestag by one extra political party. And it's partially because the AFD is so morally noxious that none of the other parties want to be in a coalition with it, is that suddenly you have a really dysfunctional political system. Now, you have many systems of proportional representation 
in which it's always been difficult to find coherent coalitions and they would shift from one election to another and you might, might vote for one party and you wouldn't quite know who you would actually be helping into government. That's a quite familiar feature of some systems of PR from Israel to Italy and so on. Mm -hmm. But in Germany, that PR proportional representation always worked better because the number of parties was more limited and the ideological alliances were more stable. I think what's going on in Germany now is that two of the basic claims that the populists have made for a long time are starting to come true. Namely, first of all, that there isn't much ideological daylight between the different existing political parties. Because if you continually have to be in government with each other in different permutations, it is of course hard to have deep disagreements of ideology. And secondly, that the only way that you can be sure that you're going to change the government is to vote for the most extreme parties. Because at this point, you might vote for the Green Party, which, as you were saying, in the 1980s, was seen as incredibly counter-establishment, counter-cultural and dangerous, and is now in some ways the most left-wing party in Germany, but is very much be normalized and is a very sensible moderate party. Or you might vote for the CSU, the most conservative segment of a Christian Democratic Party in Bavaria, and they might end up in a coalition together in the next government. And so it's very hard to stay within the democratic spectrum while knowing what kind of government your vote actually supports. And I think that's one of the systemic crises that are going on. And then the second systemic crisis that's even harder is that in some states, and perhaps soon at the federal level, it then becomes essentially impossible to build a government at all. And this is what brings us to this big political crisis in Thuringia, which has been playing out over the last month. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. For you have an objection first. Let me. I do because I, I think it's. I think it's important to situate what you've just described in one larger context, which is that the fall of the wall and German reunification in 1989-90 was universally read as both the outcome and the herald of something like ideological entropy. In other words, the West and representative democracy had won, and ideological conflict was, was in the future irrelevant because communism was dead. And so, self-evidently, it was thought, market capitalism and, and Western-style uh, democracy had won. And for the Germans, this was a particularly appealing thought because it suggested that for the first time in nearly half a century, the Germans weren't behind everybody else in the West, but in fact the front runners, <laughs> and were now were now the happy model for everybody else. And, well, and that's interesting. I mean, when you look at the 90s in Europe, you would think that Germany is at the vanguard of politics, and Italy is the bizarre, strange, aberrational laggard. And of course, when you look back at the 90s now, it looks like Germany was sort of happily behind the advancing dysfunction everywhere else, but was slowly following suit. And actually Italy with Silvio Berlusconi yeah. was in some ways a taste of what was to come. You can see why the Germans having sort of flagellated themselves, I would say both not enough and too much for half a century after 1945. And if you want um, to hear about that, read my book, Strange in My Own Country, which makes exactly that argument. Exactly. You can see why the Germans would have found that particular notion that they were now the vanguard of the four. Deeply pleasing. Deeply pleasing, exactly. <laughs> which I think goes a long way to explaining why they were so blind to the profound changes taking place in German and European and Western politics for such a long time. 
If I may very briefly plug a piece that I've written, Please. I wrote last fall in November 2019 an essay called German Lessons on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the war. And where I realized that this was the first anniversary in my lifetime, which had not been completely self-congratulatory, mm. and aren't we wonderful, but which was for the first time self-doubting and introspective, and therefore, dare I say, useful for the nation to advance in its thinking about what had actually happened. And at the same time, it saw the publication of a tremendous amount of really fascinating academic and autobiographical literature about the phase of transformation after 1990. Economic, political, sociological, and as I said, autobiographical. And I think what we are only now beginning to understand is just how difficult that period of transformation was. And rather than us West Germans endowing a grateful East Germany with the unchallenged advantages of our political system, in fact, in some ways, the East Germans have been transforming us. And that brings me to the incontrovertible point that the AFD sadly has much greater traction in East Germany than it does in the West. There is a real split here. I'm not suggesting it doesn't have traction in the West, but it's stuck at 10%, whereas in the East, in the five so-called, still so-called new lender, it regularly gets between 25 and nearly 28% of the vote. And the question that we are now looking at as the CDU struggles to find its footing in a new political landscape that is no longer defined by capitalism on the right and, as it were, socialism, not communism, on the left, but by the sort of globalist, integrationist, cosmopolitan Greens on the one hand and the aggressively nationalist and xenophobic AFD on the other, the question is, is there a path to power? for the AFD. And the only path it has is co-opting the centre-right, co-opting the CDU. That's what happened in Thuringia. So we keep promising you to come to Thuringia I, 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 and then we keep getting away from it. But I can't resist one little uh, uh, schlenker more. Digression. One little Go digression more. You know, I'm seeing a lot of articles characterizing the rise of a Green Party as a counter-narrative to the rise of populism, to the rise mm. of far-right populism. And the way that journalists and editors like to tell this story mm. is to say, look, you know, you fought with these cultural wars over immigration and integration and so on, and we're going to define this new era. But actually, a lot of people care more about climate change and issues like that. And this is why we're now flocking to the Green Party. And so the rise of the Green Party is somehow characterized as standing in tension with the rise of parties like the AFD in Germany. And I have thought for a long time that that fundamentally misunderstands what's going on. I think that we used to have the primary political cleavage in Germany, but also in some other European countries and arguably in the United States, being economic. Yeah. So that precisely if you were well-to-do and you believed in more free markets and less welfare state, you would vote for the CDU or perhaps the FDP. Mm -hmm. And if you were from a working class background, or perhaps believed in a bigger welfare state for ideological reasons, then you would vote for the SPD. And that's the world in which the SPD and the CDU had natural constituencies. I think what we've seen over the last 15 or so years is that those cultural issues that you just talked about became more and more important. And that suddenly on the right, 
what it means to be a conservative is not to have very strong views on the economy where, you know, I think VFD, for example, is still kind of trying to struggle where exactly it stands on the welfare state. I think it has some amount of debate about that within the party, but it's very, very clear that it's an ethno-nationalist party. It doesn't just oppose immigration, but actually opposes the idea of a generally multi-ethnic and multi-religious Germany. And the Green Party, I think, is the other side of the same coin, not morally equivalent in any way, but it is the clear cosmopolitan answer to that, where the AFD says, on the base of culture, we are against the multi-ethnic, multi-religious nation, we are for tradition and so on. The Green Party says, no, we are for progressive, open, tolerant Germany. And so the success of one party is not somehow a different phenomenon from the success of the other party. One reason why the Green Party is gaining so much from the SPD is precisely that the cultural I'm, I'm not contradicting any of that. I think that's exactly right. I think both the Greens and the AFD represent a renaissance of identity politics in Germany. Another thing that we thought had vanished in the political entropy of, of 1990. Yet here we are. So, Thuringia, here's what happened. Briefly, you had state elections last for, when were they, in October? I believe so. Yeah. And I mean, just by way of reminder, Thuringia is one of the smallest of the states in Germany, bar the city-states. It has, I think, just a little more than 1.2 million eligible voters. And it's one of the more economically and demographically struggling regions of Eastern Germany. Other states in Eastern Germany have done a lot better at attracting talented citizens and attracting um, new industries and, and startups. And Thuringia, which is a charming place with lots of historical cities and monuments, has actually struggled with that. So, in general, Germans have tended to think of, and I'm here I'm quoting myself in a column recently, if you'll forgive me, nice but not necessary. You know, and essentially, <laughs> you know, a pretty place but not particularly relevant in any serious way. So it was a real wake-up call when, a couple of weeks ago, the minister-president was supposed to be elected by the legislature, and the popular incumbent of Die Linke failed in two rounds of voting to get a viable majority. And then in the third round of voting, the leader of the Liberals which had gotten barely 5%, so just squeaked into the legislature in the October elections, was voted in with the support of the Christian Democrats and the AFD. That was the first time that the firewall between the CDU and the Democratic establishment and the AFD had been broken, rammed through by the AFD in a regional election. That was a real violation of a national political taboo, and it claimed the head of the current leader of the CDU, who is, I mean, she's still the leader, Annegret Kamkarenbau, also known as AKK, because, because even Germans, because for, even for Germans, eight syllables is, you know, life's too short. And she's now the caretaking leader of the CDU, and there is now a power struggle for her succession. And in fact, we still don't know who the next minister-president of Thuringia is, because at the point that you and I are talking, we're two days out from the next round of voting, where Die Linke and the AfD have stood up their candidates 
and we'll have to see how this goes. So it is right that essentially this government does not have any real power and is going to be put out, but the fact that it was elected is itself a very important... It's a violation of a very potent, the most potent German political taboo. Now, the other thing that I want to underline, because I think I'm perhaps more worried about it than you, and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you I say don't about think, that. I don't see how you possibly can be more no, worried I don't mean about, about it than I am. No, I don't mean about the existence of this government. I'm but I incandescent think, about this. Yes, absolutely, and I don't want to imply that's not the case, but I think... By emphasizing that this is sort of this weird place in East Germany and Thuringia, which is nice but not necessary, I guess my fear is that for all of the genuine differences between East Germany and West Germany politically at the moment, and for all of the things that make Thuringia a little bit apart, I worry that this is more of a harbinger of other states and perhaps even the federal level than we might recognize. And I think it goes back to this political fragmentation that we spent so much time setting up at the beginning of a conversation, which is that you now have a political situation in Thuringia where the only imaginable majorities would involve either the AFD and a combination of parties on the right, like the combination of parties that did in fact vote the current minister-president in, or essentially every party but the AFD on the left, which is to say that you would have to have the Christian Democrats support or tolerate a minister-president from the left party. It's not quite as bad as you think, if, I'm, if I may say that. We well, can drop That's, the greens or something like yeah, that. No, 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 no. Here's the deal. This is a specific problem of Thuringia, and it may become a specific problem in other German municipalities or, or some of the East German states where the AFD polls up to a quarter. Granted, on the national level, again, none of the polls suggest that the AFD is anywhere in a position to get above between 10 and 12 percent, and Die Linke doesn't get above 9 percent. So the question at the national level still remains at this point, can the CDU and the Greens together field a government? That's where we are at the national level, that, which is not to say that there isn't an issue that might be creeping up on them, and I'll come to that in a second. In all the areas where the AFD polls as high as it does, you are right, and that is bad enough, because what it's de facto creating is a return to German partition, as it were, because you have a West German political culture and an East German political culture. And that is, by the way, not to say that there aren't a lot of East Germans who are utterly horrified by this state of affairs. But I would imagine that that might, in the medium to long term, deepen the demographic problems that places like Thuringia already have, because people at some point may end up voting with their feet, which would just then become a German version of what the Americans call the big sort, people leaving because they can't stand the politics in which they're living. And there are a number of other reasons why cosmopolitan people find it difficult. I mean, we have seen, for example, a surge in right-wing extremist terrorism in Germany, we have seen a surge in threats of violence against German mayors. All of this historically unprecedented in post-war Germany. However, I do want to come back to the question of what could happen at the national level, and that's the following. What's instructive here is to look at how other European parties have reacted to the hard right, which is basically by morphing and turning into the hard right. Arguably, the British Tories are an unrecognizable party today compared to what they were a decade or two decades ago. Or five years ago. Or five years ago. They have turned into the Brexit party 
and they have made UKIP politically superfluous because they themselves have moved to the hard right. And it's not inconceivable to me that at the national level, the AFD, rather than co-opt the CDU into, into collaboration, which is its path to power at the regional or local level, might try to undermine the CDU from the inside out. Now, the indications that we're seeing of that now, the only element, visible element of the political landscape is the so-called Union, the values union, to translate it, which is quantitatively and qualitatively still negligible in the CDU, but has been a powerful irritant because it has frustrated the efforts of the CDU leadership to modernize the party and to organize political cohesion ahead of what is very clearly the waning 18 months of Angela Merkel's political career. So I think Germany is now left with two big political puzzles if we are to trace what's likely to happen in the next five or ten years. Mm -hmm. The first is, what do you do in contexts in which it is impossible to form governments just within parties in the democratic spectrum or without requiring the sort of traditional party of the right to work together with a traditional party of the far left, which would presumably make the traditional party of the right uh, lose a lot of votes in those contexts. So I clearly think given the option set in Thuringia, the Christian Democrats had a normative obligation to form a government or to at least tolerate a government of the left party. But I understand the concern of people within the party that if you do that, then you basically are making yourself irrelevant because you're no longer a credible home for the right, right? So either you have to have those very, very far ideological bridges in government, which mean you basically have a kind of unity government, or you end up empowering the far right. And the question is, is that only going to stay limited to Thuringia and perhaps Saxony and perhaps Sachsen-Anhalt and perhaps a couple of other states in the East? Or will that eventually be true in a couple of West German states or at the federal well, level? So you're skeptical that it'll happen beyond East Germany, but I think no, that's I, one oh question. No, no, I have, a, I have a much darker scenario where this becomes possible. And it's not far-fetched, given what we're currently experiencing. And it's based on a very revealing piece that one of the key ideologues of the German New Right wrote right after the three regional elections last fall, which all of which were in East Germany, where he said, we're lucky that we didn't get to first place in these three East German elections because we aren't ready yet for governing and we aren't ready yet for coalition negotiations. We still need staffing. What we really need is a national medium, something like a you know, German version of Fox News. We're still too busy. And then he said, but time is on our side. Just wait for the next crisis, the next refugee crisis, and people will be flocking towards us. And I hope he's wrong. But given the fact that we are maybe now seeing a new European migration crisis because of the horrific events in Syria, a humanitarian disgrace of the first order, a disgrace to mankind, it is not inconceivable that we are about to see another major test of the resilience and the democratic resolve of Germany's democratic parties. 
So that unfortunately sounds very persuasive. I want to get to the second big puzzle or crisis, just to ladle onto it, because the question now becomes, what does the Christian Democratic Party do? Angela Merkel's time in office is starting to come to an end. Her chosen successor, who won a contentious internal election narrowly, but then never looked particularly convincing in the post and has now resigned over this crisis in Feringa and her inability essentially to get the local party to listen to her, is gone. And there is now a race between different politicians, uh, a number of whom you know very well from your days as a student in Bonn, to replace her. And the big question is, will the Christian Democratic Party continue on its relatively moderate centrist line that it has steered under Angela Merkel? And part of the question, the most explosive part of that question is, to what extent will it continue to commit to this cordon sanitaire, to this determination not to work with the AFD? Or will the federal leadership give the green light to at least some of the state parties in the East to say, if you want to do state governments together with the AFD or the informal support of the AFD, you can do that. What do you think will happen in this leadership race? And what do you think should happen? What do you think the course of the CDU should be going forward for the health of a democratic system? So yes, it's true. There are three candidates, all male, white, Catholic, fathers of three children, and went to law from university. No, they weren't friends of mine, but we did go to the same law school in Bonn, the then capital, in the first half of the 80s. And I remember seeing them around the building, but I didn't interact with them socially, different milieus. Bonn was a very conservative law school. It was one of the top three in the country, and it was the law school to go to if you were a young conservative keen on having a political career. And so I'm having very vivid flashbacks to my mid-20s when I see these guys, because I know this milieu in which they were fostered and thrived very, very well. But that's by the by. I think all three of them are, in terms of their own declaratory posture, against breaking the taboo of collaboration with the AFD. But I am worried that Friedrich Merz, one of the three, appears to think that he can halve the support for the AFD by practicing an AFD light campaign. In other words, by espousing hard right positions. And he's already outlined some of those. He's made it very clear that uh, Europe should help the new refugees from the last turn of the Turkish and Russian campaign in Idlib. But he says they also need to understand that they can't come here. He has conflated right-wing terrorism with Islamist terrorism. Also a mistake. And what he seems to be ignoring, well, that's the best word that I can find for this, is that another candidate who has repeated so often that he's not a candidate that I'm beginning to wonder, which is Markus Söder, the minister president of Bavaria, tried exactly that tactic in the Bavarian elections in 2018. An AFD light tactic aimed at pushing the AFD out of Bavaria, and instead it lost him the sacred absolute majority of the CSU, the Bavarian sister party of the Christian Democrats. And in consequence, Markus Söder is now A, chastened, and B, the biggest enemy of the AFD in Bavaria. 
And I worry that Mertz is going to go the same route and fail in the same way that Zuda did. Now, I think that all three of the candidates, Mertz, Laschet, the Minister President of North Rhine-Westphalia, and Norbert Röttgen, the uh, chair of the Foreign Policy Committee in the Bundestag, despite the fact of having gone to the same law school at the same time, actually have quite different positions on a lot of policy questions. But I think that none of them are particularly persuasive as the successor to Angela Merkel. Why do I say that? Because I think that none of them have really understood how much the voting base of the CDU has changed since their days in law school. Merkel is blamed widely by the right wing of the CDU for having triangulated the CDU to the middle. She's hated by Social Democrats for having pushed them out and halved their voter support by the same process of triangulation to the middle. Remember that term came from Bill Clinton, who did the same thing with the Democrats in the 90s. But I think that I don't see either Mertz or Laschet, maybe Norbert Röttgen, understanding that the party base of the Christian Democrats today is actually in many ways quite close to the Greens. It is socially modern. There is, I think, absolutely no question of going back to a prohibition of gay marriage. It is far less traditionally Catholic than it used to be. And it is, I think, much more open to green and pro sort of climate mitigation policies than conservatives have ever been in the past. So I think that they may all of them end up being interim candidates and that we don't know the real successor to Angela Merkel yet. So this is the point at which I'm genuinely torn. Look, I come from the left, I'm on the center left in some kind of broad sense. I have a set of quite serious, I think, critiques of Angela Merkel's chancellorship, but she certainly is uh, the Christian democratic leader I most like, and I have a deep respect for her. And, you know, by and large, think that she has been guided by the right principles. Whether or not she's always done the right thing, I think she's been guided by good values. Now, on the one hand, that of course means that I want the successor of Angela Merkel to be somebody who comes from the same political tradition. And in my mind, the person who most clearly comes from that tradition and is very competent and, by the way, has very sensible opinions on foreign policy is Norbert Röttgen. Mm -hmm. Who's never going to be. Who is unlikely to become because he has no party Because he has no party base. But you never know these days. Oh, but I think that's, you can exclude that. We will see. I mean, I think you're likely right. But, and I think you're also right that the tactic of trying to emulate the far-right populists uh, cannot succeed because you either look like a bad copy of them, in which case the voters go to the original, which is the old phrase about this, or you essentially become the far-right populists and you manage to hold them off, but you've become them, so there's nothing gained from having them. Exactly. done that. Like the Tories. I wonder, and here I want to come back to the story of my trip to Germany in the fall of 2016, whether there isn't a third alternative. And I don't think it's represented in any of the current candidates, but whether the third alternative wouldn't be the right way to go. The only leading politician we spoke to in the fall of 2016 who saw the rise of the AFD coming and who was prescient about what it would mean for the German political system was somebody called Wolfgang Schäuble. Now, I have deep disagreements with Wolfgang Schäuble, including on the euro crisis and some of the things that were done to Greece at that moment. Don't we he all? is far more conservative than I am. 
he himself is at this point too old to be a plausible contender for Merkel's succession. But I wonder whether it isn't somebody like Wolfgang Schäuble that the CDU would need, which is to say somebody who is deeply conservative, but in the old mode, certainly not relitigating some of the cultural issues. I mean, certainly I don't think anything would be gained even by a more conservative new leader of the CDU by questioning uh, same-sex marriage. I think that's settled law as it very much should be. But somebody who can be plausible to some of the voters who are in play between the CDU and the AFD without becoming populist light, without emulating the tone and the soundtrack and the anti-institutional elements of the AFD, because that would allow the CDU to move its electorate back a little bit to the right. It may not grow overall, but it would then leave more space for the Greens and for the SPD to rise, and it would limit the rise of the AFD or perhaps even manage to win back some of those crucial percentage points from the far-right support. And if you ask me who would I most like as chancellor of the current candidates, it is hands down uh, Norbert Röttgen. If you ask me what is best for the long-term development of a party political system, and we could imagine a, a Wolfgang Schäuble who's 10 or 15 years younger, I wonder whether that wouldn't be bad. Now, I would never vote for him, but I think there's a problem in Germany when I am perfectly happy to vote for the CDU chancellor. Yeah, but then, <laughs> indeed, that is disturbing. But I think then your chancellor candidate is Armin Laschet, who is widely seen, I think accurately, as the continuity candidate, yeah, and who I think isn't quite as deeply rooted in the 80s and 90s as Mertz is. I mean, remember that, that Mertz has only ever held elected office, I think, until 1992, when Merkel ousted him as the parliamentary whip of 2002. the CDU. 2002, sorry. When Merkel ousted him as parliamentary whip, something for which I think he has borne a, a grudge ever since for the last 18 years, which is also why they haven't managed to agree on him joining the cabinet. Laschet has, I think, all the things that Norbert Röttgen has as strengths, which is foreign policy competence, are flaws in Armin Laschet, who has some combination of inexperience and documented dodgy views on including foreign on policy, Russia, including on Russia, indeed, uh, or on how to deal with the Middle East, which is, I, I don't think he is a, in any way ideologically a Putin versteher, but he is, you know, one of those many Germans who espouse the traditional view that you have to talk with the Russians and then everything will go well, which is something I, I profoundly disagree with. But look, I think there's another scenario that you haven't suggested and which, since you are a voter of the left, you might actually not be happy with, which is a left-wing scenario. Because remember, after the, the last national elections in October 2017, Merkel tried to form a government with the Greens and the Liberals, a so-called Jamaica coalition, after the national colours of Jamaica, black, green and yellow. And this ended up being blown sky high by the leader of the Liberals, Christian Lindner, who decided that he wasn't going to do this if it didn't mean a change in leadership among the Christian Democrats. And that's the reason why we have yet another grand coalition. But imagine a situation in the next elections, and if they're regular elections, this will be at some point in the fall of 2021, where you have a Christian democratic leadership that says we have to do this all over again with the Greens and with the Liberals, and the Liberals say no again. In which case, you might find yourself with the novel situation of the Greens having to look at the Social Democrats and anti Linke for a coalition. And the CDU, the Liberals, and the IFD being in opposition. 
it's not completely unthinkable. At least that might be what then becomes available if the liberals don't play. Or if the liberals, because of their recent shenanigans and the beating that they've taken in the polls, some including me would say deservedly for that, not even making it into the legislature. Yeah, I mean, I think that is certainly better than some of the other options. I'm somewhat skeptical that there will be a majority for that in the Bundestag. What if it's a plurality? What, in other words, what if we have the kind of situation because of that at the national level that we're now seeing in Thuringia, where it's unclear majorities and right. endless negotiations, and that's the kind of situation well, from which different. the AFD could also profit. But that's different from having a clear left-wing majority, which I think is less I likely. Yes. Right? So I, yeah, so I right, agree right. with you yeah. that my biggest fear is the nationalization of the Thuringia situation. Yeah, so in other words, despite the fact that you're a left-wing voter, I think that the potential left-wing government scenario that one could envisage in a situation like that is one that might end up making you quite unhappy. Well, I think if it has to involve the CDU as well, and it's basically all of the democratic parties being in one kind of unity government, I think that would in fact be be, quite dangerous. Well, that would be a historical first. Just uh, very very briefly, because we have gone on for an awfully long time, keeping all of your patience, but Constanze, uh, I think has been worth listening to on all these important questions. How pessimistic or optimistic are you for the next years in German politics? It feels like we're at a moment of transition, or we're sort of waiting for the moment of transition. What do you think the country will look like in 10 years? Let's keep that one for the next podcast. But let me say this. I think that on the whole, German democracy and German society has proven remarkably resilient. This isn't the Weimar Republic. But I'm also profoundly shocked at the fact that we are even where we are, with a resurgence of right-wing terrorism, of a quality and quantity that we haven't seen really since the beginnings of the post-war republic of rampant anti-Semitism, which I find particularly shocking and shameful as a non-Jew born in post-war Germany, of xenophobia, and the fact that we have seen actual neo-Nazis marching on the streets in my country, your country, our country, and that it took so long for German politics and German authorities to wake up to all this. The hard right of the AFD, the so-called Flügel, German news media were saying today is now being put under observation by the German Domestic Intelligence Service. There is actually another narrative sort of developing here in which you could see a direct head-on confrontation between the rule of law in Germany and the hard right of the AFD, which will be very interesting. But I think we're looking at a period of sustained political and social conflict And there are so many externalities to this that I find it impossible to make any serious predictions. But I think that this is the biggest democratic stress test that our country has seen in your and my lifetime. Well, we will have to have you back on the podcast to discuss the future developments. Constanze, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner 
for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.